0: To love learning, to laugh, to love, to be loved, to see beauty, to understand, to bring grace
1: to the things that matter most.
0: This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. Hello listeners, I'm happy to share with you that I've just authored and published my first children's book entitled There's Always Hope. The book is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giazzullo, and I wrote it with love to teach children nine and under about hope and appreciation of life, even if things don't go exactly as planned. The book can also serve as a symbolic gift for an adult who needs encouragement to overcome something. Please take a look at There's Always Hope, written by myself, Alexandra Miller, on Amazon.com. For those of you who are local to New York and New Jersey and PA, this Wednesday, March 21st, at 7 p.m., I'll be lecturing at the Juventus Academy in Sparta, New Jersey, a brand-new soccer training center that philosophically cares about the whole child. And as such, they've invited me to give once a month psychology lectures to children and parents. This Wednesday's lecture is entitled, Inspiring Change, How to Best Give Feedback to Children. Okay, it's my pleasure to share the following podcast interview with Dr. Wolf Shippen. Psychologist and author of One Minute Healing. Wolf runs a group practice out of Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. We cover a lot of interesting topics, including gratitude, how psychology has blended with Eastern religions and acupuncture, and how our past doesn't have to predict our future. You'll get the inside scoop on the technique Wolf uses as a psychologist to stop anguish caused by traumas and fears. Wolf is one of the most positive and delightful people I know. He loves humanity. He has a happy laugh. And I hope you'll enjoy your time with him as much as I did. So, Wolf, your grad school professor taught you something about gratitude.
1: She did. She did.
0: Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Um, so her name was Connie, and she was a professor of secondary education administration. It was one of the master's programs that I landed in before I decided to go into counseling psychology. And um, I was fascinated by the course because it was about educational philosophy. And we were talking about systems of healing and she shared with me that she was a Christian scientist. And that in her tradition, of course, they don't have doctors and they don't take medications. But uh, what you do when you're sick, she told me, was uh, she would call up a gratitude counselor. And this would be a person who would ask, sort of review Who's on your gratitude list, and uh, have you followed through with thanking those people for what they've done for you? And so, everyone was supposed to have a gratitude list.
0: So, this is a prescription for when someone is sick; mm-hmm. they have to come up with their list: who has done nice things for you, or who are you grateful for?
1: Yes, and the the thinking was that if you had properly expressed your gratitude to the people who were the appropriate recipients, or the people, if they're no longer around, the people who would want to know about that gratitude, such as children or grandchildren, et cetera, then your body would start to heal of whatever the illness was that you were facing.
0: Interesting.
1: Yes. And it comes from Mary Baker Eddy, the uh, founder of Christian Science, said that Jesus raised Lazarus by first thanking God for the gift of eternal life. And so by making this observation, she said that it was the gratitude that was the healing component, and that's what needs to be mobilized in order to heal the body when we are not feeling well.
0: And intuitively, that seems so right. And I know that you went on to study gratitude in depth.
1: Yeah. Well, I wanted, I, I got laughed at. Um, my professor, I said, yeah, I really want to do a dissertation on the, the association between the state of gratitude and healing. And this professor of mine, Dr. Sonny Peterson, laughed at me and she said, oh, that's far too broad. You could be spending your lifetime doing that and you need to get this dissertation done in six months. So <laughs> let's really narrow the scope. And we did. She proposed that we look at the association between gratitude and hypertension. Specifically, hypertension is known to be associated with something called cynical hostility. Uh, I
0: noticed that you had a measure of cynical hostility. It
1: was from the MMPI, too. Mm -hmm. And so if you could lower somebody's hypothetically... we. If you could lower somebody's cynical hostility level, maybe you could lower their blood pressure too. And so what we did was we used gratitude as the intervention. We asked people to state five things for which they were deeply in their heart grateful, which was language that we borrowed from two researchers called Emmons and McCullough. Um, And um, the people who were in the gratitude group lowered their blood pressure faster than the people who were not in the gratitude group.
0: And gratitude has been a part of, of what you've been teaching in many different forms yeah. at this point. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, because it's a resource state and it's incompatible with um a lot of uh problematic feelings for people. Feelings of anger, feelings of anxiety, feelings of sadness. It's very hard to be experiencing those things and gratitude at the same time.
0: Yeah, I read that a lot in your book. Yeah, you stated we can't do both at once. Can't be angry and grateful at the same time.
1: Yeah, if you really try to sound it out or suss that out, it's really hard to do. You know, how dare you do that really nice thing for me? You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, it's not, it doesn't really <laughs> compute.
0: <laughs> Can you tell the listeners the name of your book?
1: So uh, the most recent one uh, is called uh, One Minute Healing, um, and it is... Um, a book about several pattern interruptions that have their basis in neuro linguistic programming um, or NLP for short. And um, they also have ties to things such as acupoint tapping or, you know, what, what's more commonly called tapping or the emotional freedom technique yes. and a bunch of other techniques. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I read in your book that you stated that most people scrunch up time. Yeah. Can you explain that?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a really, um, that's a useful idea for what people predict about the future. So most folks believe that their past is highly predictive of their future. And a forensic person would say that's absolutely true, that past behavior is a really good uh, predictor of future behavior. But in terms of outcomes, in terms of you know what the future might hold for us, that's not true. Um, we can't, predict that because we had this terrible relationship, our next relationship is going to be terrible too. That's really not an accurate thing to say. And so what NLP teaches, uh, neurolinguistic programming teaches, is that most people believe their past is their present, and their present is their future, so their past is their future. And what we try to do is we try to get people to spread out their timeline and um, and see that these uh, these experiences, especially the present moment, has tremendous power to make changes that will greatly impact the future. But that we cannot speak of things that did happen as if they're still happening yes. and we cannot predict the future based on our past. That's fictionalizing the future.
0: I do believe as a psychologist that people can change. Yes. Why would I do what I do if I didn't believe people could change? Right. But in many cases, the past does predict the future unless they're trying to change or, yes, they're in psychotherapy or they have a rock bottom experience. That can be life transforming. Right. Religious experiences can be life transforming. So what you're talking about is someone who is trying to change something for the future, trying to change for the better.
1: Well, there's that. And then there's also the circumstantial placement of a person in terms of like where they are in their lives. So um, a lot of people will say things like, I know that I'm going to get cancer again because I had it before. Um, people will say, I know that I'm going to be disappointed by my friends in this town because when I lived over in that town, they disappointed me there too. So a lot of these things might might have some ties to what they choose to do, but no, most of them don't in, in these circumstances. And so I try to get people to uh, see their past, their present, and their future as unique, um, set apart. From, you know,
0: how do you do that with NLP? Because I'm not really familiar with this neuro linguistic programming.
1: So, neuro linguistic programming is um, a pattern, a system of thinking about communication uh, so that the communication is effective for people. And it applies to therapy, but it's also been used for sales. And lots of folks use NLP for um, uh, other purposes, um, such as uh, persuasion purposes. Um, In neurolinguistic programming, it's very important to realize that people encapsulate their ideas in such a way that it's very abbreviated. They take a complicated thing, say as little about it as possible, give it to you, and expect you to know what they mean. And in NLP, what we like to teach people is that they have to unpack the language. So, for instance, if somebody says to you, you know, I was really depressed the other day because so-and-so candidate didn't win in this election. And they're trying to communicate something to you about how they're feeling. In an, an NLP person might say, now, when you say depressed, what do you mean about that? Like, how do you know that you were depressed? And get them to describe the specific behaviors. Now, there's a big difference between like, Clinically depressed, where a person is, you know, maybe in a state of some danger. Right. And just feeling a little blue or disappointed, or maybe wearing black that day because their candidate didn't win as a symbol of solidarity with other people who wanted that person to win. But unless you get the actual data, you can't tell those differences. So, in a similar way, with time, you want people to be very much with the sense that they have power in this moment, in the present moment, to effectuate change that will carry into their futures. And if instead they're saying, well, this thing always happens to me, and there's nothing that I can do to control it, because every time I try to do this, this happens, and it's just going to keep happening, and now I don't know what to do. That's a person who has lost his or her power in the situation, because they don't see the circumstances unique. And yes. so you want to get them to focus on, no, this is actually your opportunity to make structural changes in whatever's going on and, and really take, take your power back in the moment without, without buying into the narrative.
0: Yes. So you're slowing down their very quick reaction or interpretation of how they think things will go. Right. Based on the past.
1: Right. Yeah. Unpacking it and mm-hmm. spreading it out. And Yeah. making it a little bit more controllable.
0: Viktor Frankl talked about in between stimulus and response, there is a space Hmm. and that space is so important.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because right there you have the power to respond rather than react. Yes. Yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: So, yeah, that's really great.
0: So I have a question. You talked about the wounded healer. In your book.
1: Yeah. So um, Carl Jung points this out, that um, one of the many archetypes in, you know, world culture, because he really looked at patterns around the world of of, uh, stories, um, you know, uh, is this idea that the healer is often someone who is intimately familiar with what it means to be suffering. And that very often it's the person who has suffered who makes the more effective healer. Yeah.
0: Okay. And can you relate to that?
1: Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah. So um, there were two main diagnoses in my life that, that really influenced my involvement in the field of psychology. Um, Back in 1998, I was misdiagnosed as having Parkinson's disease. And I went through a year and a half thinking I had it and got undiagnosed. And, um, what that, an
0: experience.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then in 2000, oh gosh, I think it was around 2011, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And, um, both of those have been journeys through understanding how my physical health is intimately related to my own emotional and, and mental states and um, has really informed my ability to empathize with others who have gone through not just similar experiences but any kind of pain. I, I don't think that I would have the gift of Insight into what it means to be hurting. If I were still feeling so invincible as I was when I was younger, <laughs> you know, I was, that's so true. Yeah,
0: and um, I'd like to hear more about it. I, when a patient comes to me and they are really hurting, I tell them about a quote from Katskur Rebbe. Hmm. He's a rabbi from the 1800s hmm. from Poland. And he says, there's nothing so whole as a broken heart.
1: Hmm. Wow. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. So states of, uh, you know, and, and I don't usually, you know, adopt this language, but states of brokenness can really reveal how, um, connected and real and compassionate and loving and, um, uh, just how tied in to each other we can be, um, and you don't really appreciate that unless you've gone through some of that. So,
0: so you were able to grow in compassion and love through the pain that you've experienced.
1: Yeah, and interestingly, and in, uh, you know, children bring that to a whole other level, right? So, you know, it's one thing to know my own suffering. Okay. And it's entirely another thing to see suffering through the eyes of somebody who is new to this world and who happens to be someone you love more than anything in the world. Oh. And, um, so I've, I've been growing in that experience because my children are still very small, only, you know, three going on four and, uh, 14 months. So, yeah.
0: You talked about how the healer needs to be open to experience.
1: Yes. There are a lot of things that happen in our experiences when we're working with people that will throw us off of our accumulated knowledge or whatever it is that we think is our expertise. And I'm finding that when I work with people, I'm always in the state of learning and I'm always in the state of getting feedback for what doesn't work. Um, so I had a mentor uh, in uh, Maryland, uh, uh, Ron Klein, who heads up an organization uh, that taught me neurolinguistic programming and some other things. And... Um, Ron's basic attitude toward being a helper or a healer is being an incredibly good listener is paramount, so that you can know when something is really, you know, taking root or when it's not, and having the confidence to say, "But we will find what works for you." It's going to be experimental. This process is going to be experimental, and um, that's that's where I tie that in.
0: So much of the confidence of the healer will affect the patient.
1: I agree with that. Yeah. And um, I also think that there's tremendous space to level the playing field between the quote unquote patient and the healer or the therapist or whatever, you know, um, that if you can, experience it as a co-creative experience rather than, you know, I'm the knower, I'm the healer and you are the recipient. Yes. Um then you get so much further because there's learning happening in two directions. So.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. Could you talk about what you've learned about mixing psychology with acupuncture?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite topics. Um, okay. So, uh, disclaimer. I feel like I need to have one. I'm not an acupuncturist. Uh, I am a psychologist. Yes. Uh, and I don't do any acupuncture. However, um, some of the interventions that have fascinated me the most and that have uh, obtained the fastest results in helping people get to feeling better are those that have their basis in uh, traditional Chinese medicine um, and um, an Eastern understanding of how the body affects the mind uh, and not the other way around.
0: (laughs) Yeah, say more about the body coming first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think we all know that when we're tired, we're more likely to have thoughts that are maybe different from if we're not tired or if we've had too much to drink or even too much to eat or, you know, whatever. Our body states, you know, if we're injured, our body states certainly affect how we feel emotionally. Yes, I
0: think we all know that.
1: And yet... This knowledge, if you talk to the basic person coming in for psychotherapy, um, most will buy very much into a cognitive model that is very popular now, which says, no, wait, no, it's my thoughts affect how I feel. Most people will endorse that, mm-hmm. and that's true. There's nothing untrue about that. That, of course, is one direction that this thing works, right? Yes. Um, but a lot of folks will not expect the therapist to say, um, how about we try changing something about your body first and then see how your feelings are after that? And yes. most of them are taken by surprise by that. So that's the methodology. The methodology is a Chinese understanding of the body that the body already knows how to heal Okay. and already knows how to heal even the emotions. And if we just pay attention to it, we can actually heal the emotions by accessing points on the body uh, through self-stimulation that will actually make a person feel better.
0: And that is the the meridians or touching certain acupuncture points?
1: That's right. That's right. And, and so we have a, a westernized understanding of how that works, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh-huh. But okay. I want to make the observation uh, that, um, you know, when we stub our toe, we reach down and we hold it. Yes. When we, our jaw hurts, we reach and we touch the side of our face. Um, and when we get a headache, we touch it. Um, the same is true for emotional states. When people are feeling particularly stressed, they'll hold their head. Uh, when they're anxious, they might wring their hands. And five thousand years ago uh Chinese people noticed this and turned it into a system of healing and so uh in the nineteen seventies and eighties, a man named Gary Craig, who was a uh an uh, i believe he was an electrical engineer yes uh looked into this idea that maybe when we get stuck on something emotionally, it's like a short circuit in the body. And if I could just figure out how to get the short circuit out, again, this is an electrical person thinking, if I could just figure out how to get the short circuit out, then I could take a shortcut through all kinds of therapy interventions and help people feel better faster. And he was a student of neurolinguistic programming. He asked a whole bunch of people how to how to do that, uh, doctors and neurologists, nobody could give him an answer until he asked a person who practiced traditional Chinese medicine or acupuncture. And uh, that person said, well, yes, of course, we've been doing this for 5,000 years. We stick needles in certain points and a person will feel better if they come in with a certain problem. And Gary Craig said, well, I can't, you know, this, that wouldn't be popular, I can't do that for people. I can't stick needles in people. Right. This is a long time ago. Yes. And they said, well, you don't have to. You just stimulate those points.
0: So not necessary to have the needle?
1: No. Just necessary to stimulate the point on the body that wants to be stimulated in response to a certain problem mm-hmm. and talk about the problem. And if you do that, the person will get up and uh, from, from that process and feel better. And so tapping or the emotional freedom technique was mm-hmm. born. He called it the emotional freedom technique because he thought that you should be able to have a problem that you could hold in your mind and still identify as a problem. Maybe you don't like the way that somebody talks to you. Okay. But you could access these points, deactivate this feeling in your body that this horrible anger or whatever it is that you get that you don't want to deal with anymore and still be able to hold in your mind that you don't like that way of speaking to you Mm -hmm. and have the distress alleviated. And so that's why he called it the emotional freedom technique.
0: So the distress that people will feel about whatever, what you just said, uh, I didn't like the way she said that, right? Yes. So that's the sort of thing that will repeat or flash in people's minds over and over and over again. Yes.
1: The pain of it. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. And this technique is supposed to decrease that stress quickly.
1: And dramatically, yes.
0: Talk about what studies have found, because you know I love studies.
1: So I wish I could cite chapter and verse for you, the the actual studies. But what I will tell you is that um, Gary Craig knew that this worked he came back to the United States. He had people talk about all kinds of problems, all kinds of phobias. He, There's a wonderful video on YouTube of him standing with a man in a swimming pool who's totally hydrophobic. And in 45 minutes, um, the man had a childhood trauma of a drowning, I think. Yeah. Oh. And and 45 minutes later, the man is dunking in the water, having gone through this deconditioning process Yes, that is the emotional freedom technique, which is exactly how it works.
0: I would like to um, share with listeners, a little bit of background about exposure therapy and what that means, and then you could talk about how emotional freedom technique builds on that. Sure. But I do want to mention that I did my homework before meeting with you, oh, and did you? <laughs> and I and I did find David Feinstein's article in 2012, oh, yes. which looked at 18 randomized clinical trials of the, the emotional, emotional freedom technique, yes, yes. and and the results were very good and very promising.
1: Yes. That article is cited a lot by EFT people. I think yes. because it was the first article like it that was in a refereed journal, and yes. um, really that really made you know an impact like that one. Yes. Um, so what we know now, uh, and thanks in part to Friedman, is uh, because he cited a study, and I don't remember the study that he cited that showed this, but that cortisol, the stress hormone in the body has a significant drop on each pass of stimulating these acupressure points mm-hmm. when a person goes through a process like the emotional freedom technique.
0: Yes, like 20%.
1: Yeah, about 20%. 20% down. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: so that's the that's stress a, hormone. Yeah. And yeah. so
1: what you're doing is, well, you said you wanted to talk about exposure. So why don't you well, t- talk um, about Well, just first. so that
0: listeners, yeah. because here we are two psychologists talking. Yeah. So I, I want listeners to be aware of, of what that is. As just a background, I like to give patients an example of what happens with trauma. So we could talk about someone who got into a car accident, and her accident happened on a little street, which we call Apple Street, all right? After that accident, which was traumatic, which she thought she might die or, or her loved ones might die, so she was left with, with trauma, the next time She's driving and she approaches Apple Street. She starts to feel fear yeah. and that, that fear doesn't feel good. And as she approaches it, she says, I think I'm not going to go down Apple Street. So she avoids it. And the way I explain it is one side of the brain learns, ah, I have peace and relief from avoiding Apple Street. But the problem is that it spreads Because when she approaches a similar street to Apple Street, we'll call it Pear Street. Yeah. She, you know, after avoiding Apple Street that many times and feeling, ah, peace and relief from not going down that street, it spreads to Pear Street. And then it might spread to a bigger street and it might spread to a highway. And then eventually she stops driving. Right. right? Right. So the solution is for her to face her fear directly and to learn relaxation techniques, and then go straight down Apple Street. Feel all of that fear. Feel it, feel it, feel it, but don't escape it. That's right. And stay and go down the street and teach herself that she can have peace and relief while going down that street. And she might have to do it more than once, but that's an example of exposure therapy. Yes.
1: Specifically, uh, exposure and response prevention, ERP. Yes. we
0: yes. um,
1: res- preventing the response of, of, of running away from Apple Street or other streets like it. Yes. Yes. So, interestingly, EFT is an example of an exposure and a response prevention as well. Okay. Except it works a little differently. The exposure is happening... Mentally, it's happening ideationally. We're talking about the topic and how you increase the intensity of it is you do a really good interview. So you ask the person to deeply associate into the event in this case, if we were doing Apple Street as an example, take in all the sights, smells, uh, sounds, um, textures, uh, temperatures of your ride down Apple Street right before the accident or or right after the accident happened. It depends on whatever is the most intense for the person. And you have them deeply associate into it. And you ask them to measure on a scale from 0 to 10 what their subjective units of distress are. That's suds level, Mm -hmm. S-U-D-S for short, uh, subjective units of distress. And usually with people who are highly phobic or there's been a trauma, they'll say, oh, it's a 10 or it's a nine or an eight, somewhere up pretty high. Yes. Then what you have them do in traditional EFT um, is you have them tap certain points, acupressure points on the face. I think there's five on the face. Some people add the top of the head for six points. Then there's a point on the collarbone, under the arm, then the side of the nail bed on your thumb, first finger, second finger. You skip the ring finger, you do the uh, pinky finger, and then you tap the edge of the hand. And when you're
0: Where can listeners go to see a visual of this?
1: Oh, just about anywhere on YouTube. Okay, give give
0: them something.
1: Any videos, uh, just type in EFT.
0: Emotional Freedom Technique.
1: Yeah, Emotional Freedom Technique or Tapping. They can type in or EFT Tapping will definitely get the right result. Mm -hmm. And they'll see many, many, many examples of this. And what happens is they're talking about the event. They're talking about the event in a very intense way. They have to bring to mind all the ways that they normally think about the event with the language that they normally use to describe to themselves the event. Sometimes it's in images, sometimes it's specific words, sometimes it's words that would not be appropriate to say in public. They have to use those words. Yes. And then they're tapping on their acupressure points. And with each pass of tapping on the acupressure points, they are... Uh, reducing their blood cortisol levels, which is creating a feeling of relaxation in their body that they are not used to having while going through their recollection of the event. Normally, when people are thinking about their trauma or their anger or the things that make them particularly upset, their cortisol levels are high. This time, they're experiencing the exposure, as, as we talked about, mm-hmm. but they're doing something to their bodies to make the stress lower, and by doing that, the association between the thought and the feeling, or the, um, the words, the um, images, and the stress, the distress that they feel in their bodies, is broken. And once you break it and you get it down to a low enough level, it actually stays permanently broken. So this is not something that you have to keep doing with people. If you do it well enough, you peel away the layers of it and then it's gone. And then they have the emotional freedom, as Gary Craig put it, to conduct their lives still having a recollection of the event. It doesn't erase the event. But they just don't experience the same distress when they think about it because they've been deconditioned from the original conditioning, uh, 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 the entire thing that created the condition in the first place. Yes it's now eliminated.
0: So this helps people who are who are afraid of flying as well.
1: Oh, yes, yes. That is one of my favorite ways to get people to uh, overcome phobias. I start with something like acupoint tapping or other techniques that have been developed after acupoint tapping, Mm -hmm. and then I bring them into a visualization exercise, and the visualization exercise is one in which their bodies are relaxed, but they are focused on whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish that they normally would have been afraid of. And in that, I pair it with what's called a mastery state. And the mastery state is something that they recall from their past that they did very, very well and that they're very, very proud of. And I take the resource from that mastery state and I blend it artificially into their rehearsal, their mental rehearsal of this new thing that they're trying to master. And
0: meaning they will take the time to recall something that they feel very good about at the same time yes. that they're thinking about the plane. And those two things combine are at dissonance.
1: Yes. And by blending them together, you deactivate the, uh, the, the phobia. And now the anchoring process, which is what it's called, must happen before you go into the visualization. Okay. So you have somebody think about the thing that they really master. Then you have them create usually a physical cue. I like to use taking the thumb and the first two fingers together and holding it together. And then that physical cue gets rehearsed a few times to bring them into the mastery state. So every time they put their fingers together, they feel the great feelings of confidence and competence.
0: Okay. So they do that at the same time that they talk about... Something awesome yeah, that something has happened. Awesome. Okay, exactly. so you do that first.
1: Yes, and then we go into the relaxation exercise, and then we go into the rehearsal of the thing that is uh, that problematic free to do. Right, and we say, but this time you have this resource and I have them draw their fingers together and re-experience that mastery state. And some of, maybe some of the sensory data of the mastery state, like a color they picked or a sound that they picked or something else that they picked that reminds them of that mastery state. And then that overtakes the visualization of the problem state. And now after a few rehearsals of that, they feel confident and competent in the problem state.
0: Ah, yeah. So very nice.
1: That's one of my favorite things to do. And I do that after tapping because tapping will get rid of EFT, tapping related techniques. Some of the techniques that I have in my book will get rid of that initial emotional aversive reaction. Yes, the you,
0: stress reaction, the and, cortisol.
1: And then once you do that, then you can really ice the cake. With the positive
0: feelings. Okay. So get rid of the negative and then what do you want to do? So the visualization helps them to do what it is that they do want to do. Yeah. After they can get out of that awful feeling and state.
1: That's the way. Yes. Yes. Very nice. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things to show people. And every time that I do this, I tell people that it is for them. It is their own skill that they are learning how to do for themselves, that they will become so good at it that they won't need me to show them how to do it anymore. And I usually also include for them a recording of what we did so that if they want to review it in the future, they can. Most people have a recording app on their phone of some kind and they can carry it with them. So,
0: one of the tapping points is above the heart. It's like a sensitive spot. Yeah, above the heart, right?
1: Yeah, the sore spot. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that has meaning, doesn't it?
1: It does. Well, and and I'm told, and I've seen it a couple times with my own acupuncturist, that a skilled acupuncturist can access that point mm-hmm. and know where there's a problem anywhere in the body. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Then there's another thing that's uh, known about that part of the body, the heart. If you put your hand on your heart for about 20 seconds, that's about the maximum oxytocin release that you will get by touching that part of the body, oxytocin being the calming and bonding hormone. So that's kind of a nice thing because oxytocin is released when we, you know, get a really good hug, you know, it's released during some other things. You know, you had a recent podcast with uh featuring sex stuff and oxytocin yes. is released during sex. Yes. Um and but, nursing. And and I believe that, you know, there are other activities, even petting a cat, you know, or, or, or petting a dog can release oxytocin. So Yes, it um, makes
0: us feel good and it makes us bond that's with right. those around us. That's
1: right. So If you can put your hand on your heart for about 20 seconds, you get a really nice oxytocin release. And that's uh, one of the things that's featured in some of the techniques I'll use with people.
0: Yes. So. It is interesting. Yeah. In your book, Wolf, if you don't mind, I have another question. Sure. You stated that what we witness other people doing affects the same area of our brain as if we were doing it (laughs) ourselves. So does that mean that? myself as a tennis player, if I watch another tennis player swing a great forehand, I will stimulate the part of my brain that would do a forehand as if I was doing it.
1: So these neurological structures are called mirror neurons. And it's literally the biological basis for monkey see, monkey do. (laughs) So when we, when we watch something like an athletic performance, if I'm watching Michael Phelps swim in a pool, mm-hmm. there's a part of my brain that's wondering how I could maybe swim like Michael Phelps. And the same parts of my brain are being activated uh, as his brain in the pool. So that's kind of interesting. And in visualization exercises, that is also true. If we do a visualization exercise for somebody improving their golf swing, yes. we take them deep into it and we do several rehearsals of this visualization exercise, the same parts of the brain would light up in the midst of the visualization exercise that would actually be used on the golf swing.
0: So, that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. So people could practice without having to go out on a snowy day
1: that's absolutely right and uh, it's used a lot in uh, you know sports psychology for that mm-hmm. very purpose yes
0: and how are you using that knowledge in your practice?
1: So I like to use it with uh, performance situations that involve public speaking for instance mm-hmm. I haven't had too many athletes come through my practice. I did have one person who was on a golf scholarship come in, and I, I did that with her. But most of the folks that I see are people who want to master what it would be like to overcome a phobia or what it would be like to speak in front of a group. And so that's that's generally how I'll use those principles. And I'll tell them you know, that the same parts of your brain are being used in this exercise that will be used doing that and uh, that helps weave it all together for people.
0: Lovely. So Thank you for coming to the show, for sharing all your knowledge with my listeners.
1: Really, I I really enjoyed it. I'm so
0: delighted to have you.
1: Thank you, and I wish you continued success with the podcast. It's really been great so far. I've been enjoying the episodes very much. From (laughs) the very first one, uh, really, you just got off to a great start.
0: Thank you for your encouragement, Wolf.
1: All right. Nice seeing you.
0: Nice to see you, too. Bye. This marks the conclusion of my interview with Dr. Wolf Schippen. If you would like to find more about him, you can find him on Innerwealth.com, but note that it's spelled in a funny way. It's I N N E R dash W E L L T H dot com. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra at no cost, press subscribe. Leave a rating on iTunes or share it with a friend.